I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members. And this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement. And I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast features criminologists discussing sensitive themes and topics. Listener discretion is advised. A woman becomes ill after receiving a vitamin B12 shot. When she seeks care for her illness, her blood work would reveal the unthinkable. This is the Janice Trahan story. Megan, today is special because not only can I see your face today, but the listeners can as well. I know. I'm a little nervous, actually. We have to be, we've both been on camera before, but this feels, you know, a little different. A little different. But now the listeners can share in the joy that your face brings me. Oh, thank you. You are too kind, but the same is true. Yes, good And now I have an excuse to brush my hair. (laughs) Finally, (laughs) Finally, yes. Okay. Well, today's case was brought to my attention by a listener, and I could not believe I haven't heard it before. This case, Megan, is going to shock and disgust you. In case you're not aware, you can go to our website on the homepage right on the bottom, womenincrimepodcast.com, and it says suggest a case, and you can submit there, and we would love to hear your suggestions. Okay, Megan, are you ready to meet Janice? I am indeed. All right. Janice was born September 6, 1962 in Lafayette, Louisiana. Now, there is little information on her upbringing, but it is known that Janice married young and that she graduated nursing school with her RN, which means she was a registered nurse. In 1982, when she was around 21 years old, Janice began her on-site training at the Lafayette Medical Center. And this is where she would meet a man named Richard Schmidt. 
Now, Richard was a popular and well-liked gastroenterologist. And these two had an instant connection that, unfortunately for their spouses, would quickly lead to an affair. Oh. Richard was 36 at the time, and he was married with three children. And Janice was married as well. So it goes without saying that this affair was likely going to lead to some issues. And after many months of sneaking around, the two started having discussions about leaving their families so that they could be together for real. What was just lust seemed to have blossomed into real love, and Janice ended up filing from divorce from her husband. So it However, was quite Meg, serious yeah. for her. It was, but Richard did not hold up his end of the deal, and we have seen this happen before. He would tell he told Janice that he would eventually leave his wife, but it just never seemed to be a good time. And he never would end up leaving her. And this upset Janice, but not enough to end the affair at this time. Now, this is possible that she thought she'd eventually get Richard to leave his family. And so she continued the affair. They continued this affair for many years. And in 1991, she became pregnant and gave birth to Richard's child, a baby boy. Oh, and this was when he's still married. Yes. And despite this turn of events, he remained with his wife and he did pay child support to Janice. And she did continue to see him both romantically and as a physician. Now, not only were the two involved romantically, she went to see him as a patient because she trusted him very much. Richard would often give Janice B12 shots. Have you ever heard of B12 shots or what B12 is used for? Yes, because my grandfather used to give my mother B12 shots and I thought it was weird when I was a kid. <laughs> so apparently it was a thing back in the day, but basically B12 shots would help with uh, people who were very tired. So they would often be given in the morning and they would help people kind of get through their day. Janice continued begging Richard to leave his wife. Believe it or not, Megan, this would go on for 10 years and Richard would not hold up his end of the bargain. And finally, Janice got fed up. And she told Richard that she was done. This did not make Richard happy. He wanted her to stick around, even though he was not leaving his wife like he had promised. So he told her, if you leave me, then no man will ever want to be with you. Now, this sounds like a bit of a threat. I mean, it does. It sounds like an angry ex. Um, and why would he want her to leave? He had the perfect situation. Uh, you know, he had both of the women in his life. He didn't have to sacrifice anything. He had he's taking care of his children. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it was cush. It was a cush situation for him. I'm yeah. not surprised that he didn't want to leave his perfect life. Yeah. And he probably didn't even believe her because she had said this before, but she was serious. And this time she left and she started dating other men. And one of them would become her boyfriend. This would be a man by the name of Jerry Allen. Okay. And Janice and Jerry were a really good match for each other. And the two were planning for their future together. This made Richard extremely angry and he began harassing Janice. He also would harass whoever she was dating. And at this time, he would begin harassing Jerry as well. Sometimes he would also show up on her dates and he would threaten her as well. Now, he was clearly abusive. He was described as obsessed, jealous, and controlling. Janice also reported having four abortions for subsequent pregnancies at Richard's urging. So while they were together, he was not only abusive to her, he also refused to use a condom. And every time Janice got pregnant, he would urge her to have an abortion. Sounds very unhealthy. Very unhealthy. So, you know, Janice believed that by dating Jerry, she was finally rid of Richard. 
but she could have never expected what would happen next. And I don't think you will believe this either, Megan. Okay. On August 4th, 1994, around 10 p.m., Janice, who is now 32 years old, received a call from Richard. And Richard said he would be coming by to give her a vitamin B12 shot. Now, this may seem strange. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say they broke up, but he's still treating her. He's still her treating physician. So, yeah, now they had now Janice had stopped the affair, but she was still using Richard as her physician. Now, this might seem unhealthy and like blurring the lines a bit, but she really felt that she was getting good care from him. So she was still seeing him. Okay. now during this time when he called, however, they were not on good terms. So it was a little strange to her on why he was calling her. And it's also unclear as to why she agreed to allow him to come by. Regardless, Janice let him in when he knocked on her door. When he got in, he had the syringe ready and gave her the vitamin shot, as he normally would, except this time, this shot hurt very badly. She says it hurt much more so than the previous B12 injections that he had given her. Now, she said she felt the pain radiate all down her arm. And it was kind of bizarre to her, but Richard left immediately and seemed extremely rushed and extremely nervous. I know this case now. You do? Okay. <clears throat> yes, I do. You probably don't know it all, though, because I did not know it I'm all. I'm sure I don't. Okay. This confused Janice, but she went on with her life. But this wouldn't be for long, Megan, because within a few days, she began to feel unwell. This began with a pain behind her eyes, and then she got flu-like symptoms. Now she chalked this up to an annual flu virus that she would normally get, but this illness did not go away like the normal flu would have. Now, like I said, Janice was still seeing Richard professionally, so as her doctor, he got a call from Janice. Janice said, I'm not feeling too well, what's going on? So Richard did what any good doctor would do, and he did a blood panel on her. Right. Now, the blood results came back, and Richard told her that her blood work came back normal, except that her white blood cell count was a little bit low. Okay. He's, he said, don't worry, though, because it's probably just a viral infection. Right. So she listened to him. Why wouldn't she? She trusted him. Mm-hmm. But, then her, but then her lymph nodes began to swell, and whatever was wrong with her seemed to be getting progressively worse. As she remained unwell without any known cause, she went to a series of other doctors. Now, yeah. she did exactly what I would do, Megan. Yeah. Now, she went, she went to a neurologist, an optometrist, an ENT, a gynecologist, and even a cancer specialist. She needed answers. She was not feeling well, and nobody could tell her what was going on. So her gynecologist ordered her to get blood work done again to see if maybe they could find out what's going on and hopefully get her on some sort of antibiotic or medication that would help her feel better once and for all. Similar to the blood work that Richard had ordered, these results revealed a very low white blood cell count. Mm -hmm. But Janice's life would be forever changed on January 3rd, 1995, when she got a call from her doctor. And this wasn't just any doctor. This turned out to be a doctor who actually worked closely with Richard. He had looked over her blood work again, and he informed Janice at this time that she was HIV positive and she also had hepatitis C. And that these were, in fact, the reasons why she hadn't been feeling well. Oh, what a shock. Well, he also informed her during this call that she was pregnant as well. Oh, gosh. Okay. 
Yes. And, you know, this same doctor told Richard about her diagnosis and urged him to get tested, too. Now, this seems shocking to us, right? Because this seems like an extreme HIPAA violation. Yeah, but HIPAA wasn't around then. Exactly. HIPAA did not go into effect until August of 1996. And their original intention, well, so at first I I was surprised by this, but I didn't realize that the original intention was to help more Americans gain health insurance and coverage um, just to really help employees keep their insurance if they lost their jobs. And it wasn't until 2003 when the HIPAA privacy rule established national standards to protect individuals' medical records and other individually identifiable health information. Okay. So, I mean, this is shocking to think that there was no federal law regulating the privacy of health information. Isn't that shocking? Yeah, it's it's surprising to think that a doctor might still not be bound by some type of ethical responsibility not to divulge their patient's information. Although if it's prior to HIPAA and he knows both people and he's probably just very worried. um, Yeah, I mean, it strikes me as inherently wrong, but, uh, you know, I'm not going to speak on behalf of what he did or his logic at the time. Yeah, it definitely seems unethical. But this doctor would later reveal that Richard appeared shocked and he was adamant that he himself could not be HIV positive because he felt fine and he did not need to be tested. Of course, his doctor friend urged him to get tested. In fact, even offered to test him anonymously and to keep the results quiet. But again, Richard refused. And Richard also told his friend that there is a high probability that Janice became infected through her contact with other patients at work or from her various other sexual partners. Oh, or, okay. right, or he added, as if that's not bad enough, he said, or perhaps it was from the dirty instruments used where she underwent her many abortions. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so he's not, he's not holding back here. No, he's also refusing to test, which, you know, is very strange because let me tell you something. If you thought you were in if there was any possibility that you thought you were in danger, especially at at that time period when we did not know as much as we know now, I would think he'd want to get tested immediately. Yeah, I mean, he's offering a lot of theories here. And as you said, why would he not want to get tested? So he's clear. It clearly seems like he might be hiding something. I don't know. An investigation began to find out how Janice could have contracted HIV and hepatitis C. Remember, this is only 1995 and the AIDS epidemic was a huge problem and there weren't many treatment options for people who suffered from the disease. No. For those of our listeners who are maybe a bit younger than us, during 1995, the number of reported AIDS cases surpassed half a million. So this was a huge issue. And the first, I mean, the first case was reported in the early 80s, but then we saw a rapid increase in cases until about the mid 90s. Right. And today, HIV is still prevalent as there are more than 1.2 million people living with HIV in the U.S. Now we have so many treatments. And with oh, yeah. the discovery of all these new treatments, you know, morbidity and mortality is much different, and there's many improved long-term outcomes for people living with HIV. I mean, in the 80s, um, contracting HIV or AIDS was a death sentence. And then in the 90s, things started to improve. As you said, I'd imagine around the time that Janice contracted it is when they started using AZT, which had mixed success, but was Mm -hmm. considered the primary treatment around that time as well. But it still wasn't um, like it is today that you could survive and that you could thrive. It was 
just a, a method to prolong your life. Exactly. And also remember I said she was also told that she was pregnant. Well, unfortunately, oh. she had to get an abortion because at this time it wasn't understood that people can go on to have healthy pregnancies when sure. they had these diseases. Yeah, sure. What's interesting is they were trying to figure out the source of the infection. You know, this isn't a criminal case. Nothing's going on at this point, right? They're just doing so. They want to do contact tracing so they can inform um, other people and make sure other people are safe. Right. So Janice had had about five sexual partners over the course of a few years. So that was the first place her doc her doctors would start. They tracked to see if e if any of those relationships could have led to her illness. So all five of those partners were tested and all of them came back negative. Sure. So they concluded that the virus was not from any of her romantic relationships. Mm -hmm. Now, something would happen that would perhaps change the whole course of the investigation. Now, it came to light during her treatment that Janice was a regular blood donor. And her most recent donation had been in April of 1994. Oh, wow. So they're able to go test the blood. Okay. Yep. And this is just a few months before she received her vitamin B12 shot. So get, that okay. blood, and when you donate blood, they test your blood. Right. And right. that blood donation was negative for both HIV and hepatitis C. So based on this and the phase of the infection that Janice was in, the doctors were able to estimate that she had been infected with HIV around the first week of August 1994. Well, that's certainly helpful in tightening the uh, timeline. And then you can say, hey, what happened during this week? I'm pretty sure we are. Uh, I know what's coming yep. and what happened that week. Yep. This incidentally coincided with the same time Richard had appeared at her house to give her that, quote, B12 injection. He shows mm -hmm. up urgently. They're not seeing each other. I need to give you this B12 shot. Wow. Yeah. And at this point. We are now no longer looking at a medical investigation. A criminal investigation was underway yeah. and the police wanted to talk to Richard. So the first thing they did was they asked for the file on Janice because remember Janice was being treated as a patient by Richard. Richard told investigators that he had not treated her recently. And the last time he treated her was in 1990. I mean, well, so I guess that's easy to refute if he's run sure any is. tests on her through the hospital too, especially even if you run a blood panel on her, it would yeah. be there. I'm not sure um, as a doctor, you would think he's smart enough to realize that yeah. investigators can figure this stuff out. And investigators were able to obtain her medical files after executing a search warrant on both his home and his office. And guess what they found? Yeah. <laughs> they found a lot. You're not going to believe what they found. I would assume that they found, well, A, they found that he did treat her. Yep. But I'm going to assume, so they, they I'm going to assume they also found that he was treating someone who had HIV and hepatitis <laughs> or multiple people, um, but probably just one he was treating. Now, first, they found that Richard had run blood tests on Janice as late as August 1994. Remember, this was after she came to him about not feeling well. Right. Shortly after the B12 injection. Yep. So now investigators are wondering, why would he lie? Why did he say he wasn't treating this woman when he clearly saw her in August of 1994? Maybe he was trying to hide something. Now, perhaps the biggest bombshell was just around the corner when investigators uncovered a notebook with many entries of blood draws, 
that Richard had done. So this was kind of a log that he kept. And you know, when they put like the piece of paper on the blood vial and then they put it on a piece of paper. So he had like that log that would have the sticker front that would match the blood vial. Okay. So this revealed that on August 2nd, 1994, just two days before he gave Janice a visit with that B12, Richard had drawn blood from a patient who was HIV positive. And three days prior to that, he had drawn blood from a patient who had hepatitis C. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I knew that was what it was going to reveal for sure. Now, this notebook was very detailed about the patients, except there were several inconsistencies and missing entries regarding a few patients. One of those patients being the patient with HIV the other patient being the patient with hepatitis C, and the third patient being Janice Trahan. Okay. This is still not the strongest piece of evidence. The strongest piece of- But the investigators are putting together a a very clear picture of what's happening here, what's happened. It seems like there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that are pointing to something nefarious going on. Okay. Now, it would be found that Janice's blood revealed the same strand of HIV- as the patient who had his blood drawn on August 2nd. Now, the science would be argued by experts, as we'll talk about during the trial stage, but I just wanted to point it out here to show you that there's this mountain of circumstantial evidence, and then we're moving into possible scientific evidence. Okay. The police wanted to talk to this patient of Richard's, the one that was HIV positive, and the patient that had the hepatitis C. And this patient had quite the story to tell, because... Richard had called them proactively and asked them to come to the office to get their blood drawn. Now, normally, this would not happen. Richard had told them that they needed their blood because he was doing, he was involved in some sort of study. So they needed to draw blood. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say he's a gastroenterologist as well. So he's not treating either one of these individuals for, I would say, HIV or hepatitis. So it would seem a little bit unusual. Exactly. And so he just said he was doing some trials and um, he needed, you know, would they participate? No consent forms, no anything. Just come give your blood, right? uh, Premeditation, like real premeditation here, too. Yeah. And I don't think you'd be surprised, Megan, um, as an aside, this these two patients, the hepatitis C and the HIV patient, they would, there would be many civil lawsuits against Richard because their name and condition would become public as a result of these situations. I was thinking that too. I was like, oh, I can, mm-hmm. I can see the writing on the wall with these two poor people who got involved in this as well. Yeah, it's, it's really so unfortunate. unfortunate. Yep. So this case would go to trial in 2000. And the prosecutor's case was pretty strong. What do you think the defense is going on? Before we get to the defense, I'm just going to assume that Richard's being charged with attempted murder. Is that correct? Yes, I believe it was a second degree murder charge that he was up against. And the prosecution had a pretty strong case here. In my opinion, the defense, their case was pretty weak because Richard's only rebuttal was that there's no way he could have gone to Janice's home on August 4th, 1994. Okay, so Janice is clearly saying he it's he said she said there's no surveillance, so he has to have an alibi witness. So his uh, oh, okay, so his who do you wife, think his alibi is? There, his wife go. is going to alibi him. So his wife throughout this is standing by him. Then his wife is standing by him, and she testified for the prosecution, saying that she was with Richard on the night of August fourth, nineteen ninety four. 
In fact, she said she was with him from 8 p.m. until the next morning. Now, remember, according to Janice's account, Richard showed up at her house around 10 p.m. So after a little cross-examination and prodding, it would come to light that there were about 20 minutes where she could not account for his whereabouts because she was taking a bath. Got it. The prosecution would then say, well, it doesn't matter because it would have been physically impossible for Richard to drive to Janice's home, administer an injection, and return home within those 20 minutes that his wife was bathing. So you said the prosecution, but you mean the defense claimed that that would have been impossible? Just now. I'm sorry. The, yeah, the, the defense. Sorry okay, that. yeah, that would have been. I mean, that that's yes. a tight timeline as well, but we don't know if she's telling the truth, unfortunately. Well, the investigators were like, well, there's one way to figure this out. Let's say that that is true, that it was 20 minutes. But of course, we can't know because that's just her word. But Janice only lived about five miles from Richard. So they five tried miles? this. And, yeah. So five miles could be a very short drive, I guess. And he just, yeah. I mean... He just gave her the B12 shot, so it could be quick. Got it. Okay. So investigators determined that he could have easily made the round trip in just under 18 minutes. Okay. And they had like um, traffic investigators, you know, redo the whole thing with how long it would take with stoplights and everything else. And that was being generous. So number one, Barbara could have been mistaken. Maybe she was in the bathroom for longer. Maybe she was covering for him or, you know, who knows? Maybe he was able to do this that quickly. Yeah, there's any number of possibilities. I don't think that's a very strong defense. Um, And if that's all they have, then I'm going to say this is looking very good for the prosecution. Well, most of the other witnesses for the defense were experts who testified about the analysis conducted on Janice's and the other patient's blood. Remember, I mentioned this very briefly, that there was some DNA testing done to determine whether or not these viruses were related. Okay. These arguments mostly rested upon the claim that the patient that had HIV was AZT sensitive, whereas whereas Janice's HIV was AZT resistant. So they did kind of establish or they were trying to establish a reasonable doubt that these two HIV infections were the same. Now, this was extremely new technology at this time. So there was a lot of debate as to the accuracy So mostly, I would say this case hinged on circumstantial evidence, but many people thought the DNA results were pretty convincing. Let me give you a little more information about the DNA results. Okay. So there was an expert for the prosecution who took Janice's blood, the HIV positive patient's blood, and 28 blood samples from HIV positive individuals. Mm -hmm. And they blindly gave it to a lab to look at all of these samples to see if there was a genetic link between any of these strands of viruses. Okay. And the only two that matched with a margin of, I think they said one in a million chance of not coming from the same strand was, of course, that of Janice and the HIV patient. Right. Um, So that's what the prosecution's expert said. But the defense's expert said, this science is too new. We don't know what we're dealing with here. Look, I I get that. And I'm sure it was very new at the time, Uh, and especially being introduced in a courtroom. uh, Most cases are circumstantial, though. And I think that's Mm -hmm. something not everyone knows is that most cases involve circumstantial evidence. It's a matter of how strong that evidence is. And in this case, it's very strong. Um, (laughs) It's a reasonable person Mm -hmm. would draw what conclusion based on the evidence presented. So, I mean, that's the standard here. And then, you know, the cherry on the cake is kind of having that 
added bit of scientific evidence that maybe yep. doesn't sway the jury entirely, but add it to the pile and, and you have, you know, more of a mountain of evidence. Exactly. Do you want to guess what happens? I, I can only assume that he is convicted of second degree murder and sentenced to prison. I don't know for how long because this was 1995, mm-hmm. but I'm going to assume for quite a while. Uh, remember, trial was 2000, but either way, 2000. you are. Okay. Yes, but that's okay. The case was 1995. So Richard was convicted of attempted second degree murder of okay. Janice Trahan, and he was sentenced to 50 years. And something I found very interesting before we talk about that sentence is in Louisiana at the time, you did not need a unanimous jury. So oh. two people, two out of the 12 jurors actually believed that this should be a not guilty verdict, but the majority of the jury felt guilty. Isn't that interesting? I'm surprised that two people thought this was I'm not surprised guilty. Too. I'm surprised too. So when people talk about this case years later, they still talk about this, you know, the DNA, but mm-hmm. they also question the reliability of, the conviction, given that there were two jurors, because that the standard has thus changed since then. But at the time of this case, you did not need to have I don't I think it was you needed nine or 10 jurors at least. And they had the 10. See, if it needed to be unanimous, though, you could also argue the jury might have changed their minds because knowing uh-huh. that they did not have to be unanimous, it gives you a comfort, right? Most juries mm-hmm. will hash it out in a room until arguments can prevail until there can be a consensus if possible. So it's still possible mm-hmm. that it would have been unanimous had those jurors had a different standard. That's true. And we see cases where the judge is going to send the jury back if it's hung until yeah. they could reach a verdict. And that yeah. might have happened here anyway. Yes. So 50 years. What do you think about that sentence? Totally appropriate. I don't know that I would feel differently now, but especially at the time, like I said, uh, given what what was known and unknown about HIV and AIDS, it was still considered at that time, I would say tantamount to a death sentence. And so attempted murder 50 years appropriate. Mm-hmm. And, and the method by which he did this and the concealment, the premeditation, what it says about his character um, as well. There's just so much that would support that kind of sentence for me. Well, when he went up for parole in 2015, the parole board agreed, Megan, and the parole board unanimously denied his parole. And I'm sh- I was shocked by this, but he claims he's innocent, showed zero remorse, and I think that's probably why they denied his claim. But again, unanimous by a three-member state parole board mm-hmm. that there was no way this guy was getting parole. And remember, we talked about Barbara? She stayed by his side throughout the whole thing. I believe they stayed married and she was an advocate and believed in his innocence. I'm not surprised that he maintained his innocence whatsoever. That does not surprise me. I'm also not surprised that parole board would deny him. So good. I'm not surprised at all. And that was the last we had heard of him. I don't believe he had gone up for parole again. Um, Unfortunately, he did pass away in prison at the age of 74 in March of 2023. So when I was doing research for this case, I didn't, it was hard to find a lot of information. Like there's not a lot of recent articles, but all the recent articles was about the fact that he had passed away in prison. So Richard passed away in prison. What about Janice? Has she um, survived, thrived, Mm -hmm. put this behind her? What has her life, you know, become? Now, despite her HIV diagnosis, we know that today it's no longer a death sentence because of the medical breakthroughs. And She has been able to go on to live a happy and fulfilling life. She has since remarried, and she recently made a statement that says, quote, 
I deal daily with the harsh side effects of the medications and I take one day at a time coping with my illnesses. I am disabled and unable to work. I have been blessed in many ways and Jerry and I just celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary. My husband, children, and grandchildren give me many reasons to live. So she's, you know, yeah. So I'm very happy when I read that she was able to somehow move forward from this traumatic. And if you, I don't know if you caught the name, but she ended up marrying the guy that she was dating. I did. I did. That's wonderful. I'm glad to hear about that outcome for her. It's what she deserves. But as she said, she struggles every day. And this is through no fault of her her own. This was through such a malicious act and such a malicious person. So malicious. And I don't watch Forensic Files. I know you watch those kind of shows. I heard that they covered this case. I'm assuming you didn't see it, or is that how you know about the case? Um, No, I just remembered it, to be honest. And I don't even know if it was from, like, my mom or the news. You know, my mom okay. was, like, uh, her own crime news station. Uh, I didn't see it on Forensic Files, though. Okay. I-, I stopped watching Forensic Files after their coverage of Melanie McGuire's case. I was like, no, I'm not watching anymore. Okay. (laughs) They didn't respond to my email. So I was like, no more. (laughs) Besides the fact that this case is so shocking and there's so many layers to it, one of the reasons this stands out is because it was the first time that this type of DNA was used to prove a connection between two HIV positive people in a U.S. criminal court. Now, this was not the first time that DNA was used in criminal court, just this type of DNA. Yes. And Janice's case actually occurred almost a decade after the first criminal case that included DNA. So DNA was first used to solve a crime that occurred in England in 1986. Mm -hmm. So in 1983 and 86 in England, two young girls were raped and murdered. Mm -hmm. And over the course of the investigation, a 17-year-old local mental hospital employee confessed to the crime. And this was, well, confessed to the 1986 murder. Now, these two cases were very similar, but the suspect only confessed to one of them. So authorities used DNA testing to link the two crime scenes and thus implicated the suspect in the 1983 crime as well. Wow. Um, Now, the two crime scene samples matched each other, but they did not match the suspect who confessed. So that guy ended up—do you remember this now? It's so interesting because it prompted— it prompted, so he was released, but it prompted authorities to launch a mass screening of over 1,400 townspeople, and the real perp ended up giving their DNA sample. Yes, I do remember that. Do you know the first time DNA was used in U- the United States? This was about a year later in 87, the first American ever convicted in a case that utilized DNA evidence. I want to say it was in Florida. <laughs> it was in Florida. <laughs> nice, Megan. I... I do. I am again drawing a blank, but I I, once you say it, I'm going to know it. It wasn't a murder case. It wasn't. It was like, was it a robbery? Maybe I'm not sure. The burglary and rape of a woman at gunpoint. And this man's name was Tommy Lee Andrews. I don't remember the name, but I do remember the case. Okay, so he was a serial rapist and um, crime and, and semen retrieved from the crime scene match blood drawn from Andrews when he got caught in a different crime. At this time, the state had no DNA data bank. Obviously, today it would be a little different. Very different. Okay. Okay. Let's finish trivia. Moving away from trivia and let's get into theories. Okay. All right. So how do we explain the heinousness of the crime that Richard committed? Any thoughts before I tell you my thoughts? Well, he's got clear personality disorders, Mm -hmm. clear narcissism, I would say, probably antisocial personality disorder. 
So you've heard of the term probably godlike complex, which I think unfortunately gets inappropriately applied to a lot of, let's say, doctors or other medical personnel, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes appropriately applied. There's a reason that some of these ideas or I don't want to say stereotypes come about, but I, I certainly see with him this godlike complex. Mm-hmm. How dare someone leave me? She can't leave me. I'll show her. So I would say yeah. personality, serious personality disorder, such a reverence to himself, uh, believing that no one could ever leave him and that she had to pay a serious price because of this violation that she would want to leave her married boyfriend and have her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, probably also he thought he was untouchable. So I'm going to say control balance theory. <laughs> I knew it. Yeah. You hit every single one that I was thinking. I, I was okay. thinking so control so balance theory yeah, go ahead. Um, is, uh, you know, control theory that says people who have too much power and lack of oversight and don't think that they're going to be regulated in any way. And he didn't think anyone was going to look into him. Not the great doctor. Right. And he was nope. almost surprised. It sounded like when they did or when they suspected him. So mm-hmm. people like this will commit crimes of greed. And this is in some ways a predatory crime of greed and overstep. Mm-hmm. Um, it's gross. Yep. Absolutely gross. So control balance and personality disorder. That's what I see offhand without knowing anything else about his background. Honestly, those are the only two that came to my mind. Um, okay. And also you could see the control balance a little bit too. Like his wife stayed. He's used to people in his life doing mm. what he needs them to do. He has a lot of control over everything going on in his life. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but people loved him at the hospital he worked at. He was like this great doctor. He had great bedside manner. He was charismatic and exactly what you would think of when you think of this godlike complex. Right. I also think of antisocial personalities, total superficial charm. Mm-hmm. People love him. They think he's the greatest, but he wears, um, what was it? You know, the mask of sanity. He wears the two faces. So wears one face in public and wears one mm-hmm. another face in private. One thing I wish yep. I knew, but I don't think I need to, is more about his relations, um, his communication, his dominance over both his wife and Mm -hmm. uh, dominance, if there was, and Janice, you know, what was the dynamic like? Was he, I would say he was probably like a bit oppressive and and controlling and probably more demanding, you know, that they kind of felt like they had to appease him in many ways. Well, he was downright abusive to Janice. I'm not sure that Barbara ever came forward and said, but yes, he was you know, he used coercive control on Janice. Okay. There were allegations of physical abuse. Remember, he was stalking her. Yes, um, I do. You're he right. Also, he also, uh, I don't know if I mentioned, but he also had sexually explicit pictures of her that he used to blackmail her to get her to do things. And the police okay, uncovered no. and the police uncovered these photos and photocopies of the photos when they searched. So that was also more evidence that corroborated Janice's story about the way he was acting towards her. Yeah, yeah that's not surprising. So that... That evidence all supports my conclusions, I would say. Yeah. yeah. And I mentioned before that some still debate the science that was used in this case. But I think you can believe in Richard's guilt and still see the problems with the scientific evidence yeah. and the way it was handled. Right. They can both yeah. be true at the same time. Absolutely. It's not one or the other. I didn't go into all the scientific details um, because I'm not a scientist and I didn't want to, I didn't, I don't know that I understand it completely, but I can, I definitely could see where some experts may have exaggerated the findings and there may have been some issues with methodology and contact Mm -hmm. tracing, 
But, you know, the standards for use of DNA in the courtroom have evolved over time. Yeah. So I think even if this case didn't, as you mentioned, even if this case didn't have the DNA, I still think he would have been found guilty. I would think so as well. Today, when we see DNA evidence used in courtrooms, usually it's, you know, statistical estimates and DNA evidence is most likely admissible in court if it's based on valid scientific theory or a valid technique implementing that theory and also testing and interpretation. Now, the science was just simply too new at this time to have all of the empirical evidence that we would have today. It's so interesting because back then it was so new that jurors didn't know about it. They didn't probably trust it because it wasn't well known. It wasn't reliable Mm -hmm. or considered reliable. Now it's almost like jurors don't want a case without DNA, right? Exactly. And you're like, well, sorry, not every case has DNA. Yeah, we might have Um, swung too far the other direction, right? (laughs) There's just a different expectation now, I think, and such a widespread awareness about DNA. And there are so many other interesting cases that kind of fall into this area. I'm sure you've heard of these before of people being charged with attempted murder by knowingly infecting partners with HIV or other diseases. So there's a few that I'm considering in future episodes um, because the rabbit hole I fell down with this case, Megan, I spent so much time on this case because I kept being led down all these other areas and found out so many interesting things that I really didn't know about the use of DNA and just stuff in the area that's foreign to me. The cases that I've heard that involve um, attempted murder or other criminal charges usually involve partners who knowingly concealed their HIV status and maybe did not Mm -hmm. use protection. But as I understand it, those are extremely controversial cases as well. And some of the laws that were passed have been repealed since because of the complexities as well. So um, it's definitely an interesting area of litigation, especially going, you know, going forward. Yeah, one of the cases on my list um, is exactly what you just explained, mm-hmm. where a partner, um, you know, there was some, it, and it's almost similar to cases of sexual assault, where you're dealing with one person's version of events versus another, and if you don't have medical records to substantiate, right, you know, it gets really tricky. But right. um, those cases are definitely on my list because they're so complicated. And Amy, you're complicated, so that's why you would put a complicated list, uh, a case I on know. your list. It's true. Oh, I'm, I, I'm, I'm really drawn to these complicated cases. <laughs> I really am. It's okay. I am. Before we leave, though, Megan, let's take a few questions. You know what? Let's take two questions before we head out today, if that's okay. okay. Sure. You still have a few minutes? Okay. I do. All right. So one supporter's question is, I would love to hear your thoughts on the Ethan Couch case and the defense of affluence. This supporter says they were blown away when they read that this defense was pretty close to saying that he was simply too rich to go to jail. We've talked about this before, and I talk about this in my classes a little bit. Um, This idea that somebody is too privileged, so they didn't understand what they were doing is wrong. Do I have that right? Yeah, pretty much. And I mean, I would have two defenses myself to that. One, ignorance of the law is not a defense of, you know, it's not a defense. So that would be one of my answers here. And also show me where affluenza exists in the DSM. And maybe we can talk then, but it does not. There's no actual condition. Um, So as I understand this, this is a pseudo Yes. medical condition. Um, mm-hmm. And this is pseudoscience. And I don't believe it has a place. In I the don't courts. even think it's pseudoscience. I think it's reminiscent of something like the Twinkie defense. 
right? It's it's just so ridiculous. I don't even want to. Yeah, I guess you're right. But at least the, the Twinkie defense was rooted in the idea that there, um, yeah, is sugar. There's diet, and and you know there's yeah, a proven biological link here. So I can give more credence to that. I'm sorry, yeah, I, just, I guess I just don't recognize this as any type of legitimate defense. And that's what I'll yeah, say. Yeah, I see it more almost as like something the media takes and runs with, right? The Twinkie defense didn't even involve Twinkies, but it was just something that the media was able to use. And, you know, the the defense of affluenza, I don't even know if that was that term used in the courtroom or was that something that the media made up? I'm not sure. I, I thought yeah. it was a legal term, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And I'd also point out that if we don't let, you know, all of the people in poverty use their status as a defense, <laughs> deprivation, that's yeah. not a mitigating uh, factor or a defense in court. I don't see why the opposite would be used. I agree. And that case reminds me a little bit of the Brock Turner case. Chanel Miller, we covered, but we were talking about yes. um, Chanel was the victim, but we were talking about Brock Turner, the offender in that case. And some of those themes came up there. Yes, Absolutely. Thank you for the question. Very interesting. Yes, very interesting. The last one, um, Megan, you're going to like this one. Will you be covering the Casey Anthony case? Any thoughts on that case? I know you watched, I believe, the whole trial. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. I did watch the whole trial. And um, I think you I think you wanted to cover it. And I think I told you not to because it's too overdone. But I have a feeling you're going to anyway. I struggle with it. There's a couple that I struggle with because I don't want to cover cases that have been, you know, done to death, no pun intended. Mm -hmm. But that one and Jodi Arias, they always circle back for me, especially after seeing the documentary with Casey Anthony, too, and hearing her further accusations and further what I deem to be lies, then it makes Mm -hmm. me want to cover the case and further expose her, except I think most people already Agree that she mm-hmm. is guilty of something. The question really yes. is of what. But it's yes. it's certainly a possibility that I will cover her case in the future. You know, Megan, I think you should, because over the years at the beginning, I always said, let's not cover these cases mm-hmm. that everyone covers. But our listeners have given us wonderful feedback and it's they true. appreciate when we cover well-known cases because true. we, I guess, talk about it through a different lens maybe than they've heard before. So I'm open to it, Megan. If you want to cover okay. Casey Anthony, Jody Arias, I'm here for it. Well, then you better block out like a month. So I don't think one <laughs> session of an hour and a half is going to cut it. But no, probably Thank not. You. Probably not. All right, Megan, I have to say this was fun. It was nice to be able to see you. Out. Well, actually, I always see you when we record, but it's a little different actually. because other people can see us now. I know it was fun. I really enjoyed it. And we're going to have many more videos to come, we hope. So, yes, I hope so. I look forward to it, Megan. And thank you all so much to our listeners and viewers for joining us. And we will catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. Script editing is by Abigail Bel Castro. Audio editing is by Siler Burr and Jose Alfonso. And music is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to follow and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as exclusive full-length episodes, lectures, a book club, and virtual happy hours with Megan and Amy. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women and prime. Sources for today's episode include ABC News, The Advocate, HIV Law and Policy, Newsweek, Wired.com, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, Court Transcripts, and the National Institute of Justice. 
Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.